0: You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org, or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I am your host, Rob Osell. I'm an architect at this.labs. Today, we are very excited to sit down and talk testing with Andrew Knight, AKA Automation Panda. Andrew is a software quality champion, Tools principal developer advocate, test automation new director, and playwright web ambassador. Honestly, it sounds like he needs more hobbies. Uh, Andrew, how are you doing today?
1: <laughs> doing fantastic, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. I'm so glad to have this conversation with you. I feel like uh, testing is, it's a fun topic these days. Uh, some of the new tooling that's coming out, some of the new, goodies we have some of the you know the prospects of AI and some of the things that have come out of that I, I I feel like people that are passionate about testing have been very excited lately
1: yes yes what we see with good developer experience evolving has now moved into good testing experience finally
0: yeah. That's that's great. And we're going to talk about a lot of it today. Now, first and foremost, I thought it might be interesting to just kind of hear a little bit about how you got here. Like, do you mind telling us kind of what got you so passionate about testing? Because as I was preparing for this, I mean, I you are giving talks on testing from any number of angles. Uh, <laughs> what What kind of got you so passionate about testing?
1: I think it's because I discovered that software quality has an enormous problem with quality, Um, I remember my early internships and my, my new college grad jobs coming in and being told, okay, you're going to work on test automation projects and, you know, learning how the way things should be done and coded and then seeing how they were actually done. I'm like, this, this doesn't make any sense. There's such opportunity here to make things good, stable, readable, understandable, fast. And so I guess that's just how that became my ax to grind. (laughs)
0: that's great yeah it's funny too because uh, for half my career I was a desktop developer C++ oh. c sharp and things of that nature and mm-hmm. then came back to web development I used to do it when I was a teenager and sure. I have noticed I know not all teams are the same but like at least in a lot of the teams that I've had exposure to it's kind of the wild West sometimes on these web teams uh yeah. you know people sometimes people don't even have Functional manual testing. Uh, a lot of times, it's just sort mm-hmm. of you know, do your best and send it off, and hope that users will contact you, or you know, Sentry will notify yep. you, or whatever else. And I don't know. Like, have you seen differences between different communities in, in <laughs> when, you, when you meet with them about like mm-hmm. how they value these different testing practices? I mean, not to sling mud, just to say like, no, no, no. Is it really this? Have you observed something like this too?
1: Yeah, it's pretty much the state of affairs. Um, it's, it's not like any one particular tech stack community does a better job than other. It's not like, Oh, Python does better than JavaScript. No, no, nothing like everybody stinks at it. (laughs) Everybody universally stinks. That's why I'm here. Um, what I, what I've seen is you, you kind of have, you you can either have two opposite ends. You either have the wild West, which is usually smaller companies, you know, 50, 100, 150 person, everything is lean. You got to push code, deliver value, move fast, break things. And so once once they hit about 100 to 150 people, then they're like, you know, it's really hard to maintain this thing and we don't have any real testing going on. That's the Wild West. But then I've also seen in bigger companies, you know, big banks, insurance company, healthcare, monster size, you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of employees. And there it's just institutionalized. You have developers and you have testers you know, and this whole agile transformation thing is like still new in 2023 sometimes. (laughs) So um, in those cases, it's, the testing is entrenched and it's often entrenched in more old school ways, not necessarily old fashioned ways, but old school ways. And so there's, uh, these companies are just trying to make the DevOps happen, you know, very, very interesting worlds.
0: Yeah, that, that you know that is true too, because uh, that that other side of it is it's funny how testing is is a technological problem on one part. I know you've described testing as an art as well, which I think I would agree with a, a, as well. But it is also a business process challenge um, because nothing will get you past an issue if your team or your company or your business has determined that no matter how small a fix is it still has to go to the testing team for a full regression suite test and you know you can't push out anything faster than two weeks or whatever the time period is for it and you know again it's great that of the quality that you get from that i mean you get it's not that you get nothing for that trade-off but you know it's it's interesting that that's not something you can just npm install a library or you know get a vendor for because you really have to embrace this holistically
1: Yes, yes, very much. It's It requires buy-in from the people working on it. It requires buy-in from the business. And it's it's hard to get that sometimes because it's very easy to say, oh, I implemented this new feature and I can push it out and that's gonna make us money or that's gonna deliver value. Testing is grind work that doesn't go to a customer, right? Testing is a risk mitigation activity. And so it's like, ooh, well, how much, how much risk can we get away with, right? That's that's the rub.
0: Um, I know that you gave a test recently, or excuse me, a talk recently. I gave a test recently too, but. <laughs> <laughs> about which uh, web test framework people should use. And I won't make mm-hmm. you go through all of that. But what strikes me is that with the test frameworks that we have now, um, we just recently got a chance to talk to um, uh, Debbie O'Brien from, from the Playwright team and uh, got to see some of the new stuff that they're working on there, which is super exciting. It feels like, especially with websites and web experiences so much more as testable that maybe was harder to test until recently, especially with what used to be such a focus on uh, unit testing, even unit testing components. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of times when you had teams that had those process limitations, they were like, well, I love our automated testing, but I can't trust it without the functional component. And, and there was like that kind of reluctance to give free, uh, to let go mm-hmm. of that. How do you feel that the frameworks are doing now on being able to do that? Like, what is, you know, are we able now to write automated testing and these types of, you know, end-to-end testing, things that might even run in the production environment that are able to achieve basically all of the things or at least nearly all of the things that our users <laughs> are able to do now? Like are we in sure. that sort of promising place now? I think so for the most part. Um
1: in terms of the the functional aspects of how you can click through a page and you know interact with a particular component, submit a form, all that's been there for years. I mean, Selenium was was OG on that. Um, what we see in these newer tools and frameworks like Cy- Cypress and Playwright is that focus on a rich, modern developer experience with testing. Like Playwright, it it brings up the whole window and it steps you through, you know, Playwright is super fast. It supports all these languages. The syntax is beautiful. And now they're coming out with like UI view. It's almost like the Playwright is kind of tracking what the innovations that Cypress has done. Um, So in terms of that whole, like, can you test a website like a user? Absolutely. You know, we've had that for a long time. Can you test it? Well, you can test it better than ever. I feel Um, the, the tough parts are going to be things like user experience, right? How does the website look and feel? Uh, for those kinds of things, you still do need human eyes and fingers to do it because you know um, it's it's very hard for automation to um, capture that 400 millisecond threshold. But when, you, when you're when you using it, you feel it. Um, other things historically that have been hard to capture like visuals, like, hey, did my thing shift on a page? Do I have text overlapping? Did a title go null? Did my CSS go shoom? Um, <laughs> historically, those have been difficult. But now we have better visual testing tools like Apple tools for whom I work amazing visual AI for those kinds of comparisons to catch those issues. So it's, and then I'll also say one more thing uh, where I see the industry going in the space is autonomous testing, where rather than you having to code all the stuff yourself, you kind of point a tool or an agent at your site and it using AI and ML technologies kind of learns what's going on and helps you make tests so yeah, that maybe that... it can be like a little assistant to you.
0: <laughs> That's, That's where I wanted to take this next, because that was the other um, sort of manual testing process that honestly, Mm -hmm. I hadn't been able to um sort of come with an alternative for that i Mm -hmm. still was like you know what even if we go automated for everything i would still love to do regular batches of what my team used to call monkey testing you just throw Mm -hmm. some people in there and you just bang around do stuff you've never tried before just to Mm -hmm. see if you can break it because tests can often only be as good as your creativity um as is what you realized you wanted to do but sometimes when you just get in there and bang around as a real user Mm -hmm. uh that's when you really find some some troubling bugs Yes, the autonomous piece, and I love it because there's a blog on the site I believe that you wrote for this, which sort of compares one of its lowest level settings <laughs> to be that of like a Roomba, just bumbling oh. around your your oh. app, figuring out what it can click oh. and trying to click it. Um, but can you explain to us how, like, how this autonomous piece will is or will work um, as far as how it might be able to replace that kind of just banging on it type of testing mm. that some teams still, you know, uh, are, are engaging with.
1: Sure. Sure. So first I will we'll qualify. I don't think autonomous will ever fully replace that monkey testing as you called it. Um, I call it exploratory testing. Um, just get humanized because quite simply it's, it's super easy and low tech to have people just go at it. Right. It's, it's the ultimate litmus test. Can somebody use it or not? So there will always, always be a place for that, I think. Um, but in terms of what autonomous will be able to do and where it's going, uh, we don't, we haven't achieved it today. <laughs> There's in fact, I, I, I know there are companies and orgs and people trying to push into this space and we're starting to see a little bit of the, the glimpses of the first fruits. Where I would like to see autonomous go is <clears throat> where there would be learning that is done on how our software products and applications work. For example, like a web, web apps loaded in a browser. It's, it's got the DOM. There are very established types of web elements. There are certain established workflows within our apps. Login is all the same. Checkout is all the same. Like they might look a little different, but the, we've already established these flows. So to be able to learn those kinds of things in general first, but then to come into a specific app and learn things very specifically for the context of that app, where like whatever is making up your secret sauce, like, you know, if you're. Like one of my, you asked about, you mentioned hobbies. I'm into classic air-cooled Volkswagens. I have a Beetle, a Bus, and a Carmen Ghia, right? So maybe there's an app out there that shows me how to piece together the engine of a type one Volkswagen, right? That would be some secret sauce that a, a an autonomous agent would have to learn how all that flow works. And so be able to put that, train that on your site. So it has the training in general, has training specific. And then from there, be able to figure out what the behaviors are and then, cover them or at least present them to a human to say, Hey, I found these kinds of workflows. Um, Can you prioritize which ones are most important to you? Do these even make sense? Are there different ones that maybe you should walk me through and to kind of keep that learning loop going so that what ultimately these autonomous agents can do, they can, they can propose test cases based on behaviors. Um, They may even be able to look at observability data to determine what people are actually using to help prioritize behaviors. And then even, potentially and hopefully someday, to go and execute those behaviors autonomously. (laughs) So that we as the developers, the humans, the creative minds can focus more on the behaviors that we want to put into our software products and less on the implementations of the specifications after the fact to just make sure they keep working.
0: That's really fascinating. I love the idea too of a potential future of bringing in different ki- different kinds of training data. So, I remember at one point uh, David Korshid from XState was talking about the future of using if you you know if you're leveraging state machines in your application to kind of control flow of using that as potential training information, because if some sort of uh, an analysis agent can determine that I can transition between certain states, and then can learn that certain UI operations are how you make those transitions, it's mm. much more informed of what are paths intended or unintended through through the application, which is uh, I thought was was super promising. Or um, you know, Minko Getchip I can't remember what the name of the library is but had this library where it was trained off of like google analytics data in order to determine intelligent intelligently what to prefetch. Mm-hmm. um so that was a performance tool but similarly for testing right like if mm-hmm. what if these agents are being trained off of how users are currently using your tool what are their paths mm-hmm. through and things like that um mm-hmm. yeah that suddenly this sounds Really exciting. <laughs> yep. And it's honestly a little surprising that we haven't done
1: it yet <laughs> because not all of these things need AI or ML technologies. Like you mentioned state machines. Yeah. Well, if we can just build a state machine, that helps us a lot. And it, it's not just about like hundred percent either. Testing is never hundred percent coverage. It's sure. about getting the most bang for your buck. It's about getting the most value you can out of activities. And so if we can have, you know, the, the first easy steps, the low hanging fruits, right then we can probably deliver a lot of value pretty fast so
0: wonderful well we jumped on from the web test frameworks really quickly there i suppose I... it's worth stopping briefly to just say because i know that a lot of times on teams right there's so much um i don't know if you'd call it fomo but certainly a lot of times people feel like they might be using the wrong tool or or whatever Mm -hmm. along those lines is there a current state of play as far as i mean you might have a favorite tool and i won't ask you to give it up if you don't want to share it but is there is there a a sense of what people should understand as far as the current state of play of tooling like if is, Mm -hmm. is there a tooling that if they're on it it works, if it works for you, that's fine, but you should really be looking to mm. upgrade to whatever. What is kind of your impression of, of the landscape?
1: Sure, sure. So when I look out at specifically web browser, browser-based web UI testing tools, the, the big three are Selenium, Cypress, Playwright. Um, honorable mentioned, WebDriver.io. And then and there's like smaller ones that, yeah. <laughs> if we want to dig into that later, we can. But um, each of these three are good. Um, and it's not that one is necessarily universally better than the other. It's that they all have different um, use cases. You know, yes, we're all doing web UI testing, but there are, there are nuances to each of them that may make them more or less valuable to your team. So for example, like if you need to test full on browsers, like for compliance reasons, like you need the Google Chrome, the Internet Explorer, the uh, Apple Safari, um, and you want to really test it exactly as if a human is going to be interacting with it. Um, you're you're going to naturally pick Selenium WebDriver, right? That's that is the tool for that. Whereas um, <clears throat> if you are a front end developer, you just need to make sure that your UI comes up, your components are dancing, you know, and you really want that integrated into your developer workflow. Um, Cypress is probably the tool for you, <laughs> right? Because it's it's got that amazing UX. It's got that window that comes up. Um, if you want something that executes really fast, you want it in different languages. Um, you want that really nice syntactic sugar with all the, the you, basically it's kind of like the compatibility of Selenium with the the uh, user experience of Cypress, Playwright your tool. You know, I'm a big Python guy. I love Python. I can't use Cypress in Python. <laughs> Oops. Okay. But I can use Playwright in, in in Python. It gives me all the nice goodies. That's awesome. Right? So i i don't want to like tell people you should do this or you should do that or this is the best what i'd rather do is listen to people and be like what are your needs right Mm -hmm. what are you trying to accomplish with testing and automation what is your stack what are you familiar with what are the pain points you've had in the past and then from there give advice well maybe you should consider this you know um i know you you're asking specifically well is there something where if you're on one tool you should move to another what i would say is what is that, is your current situation working or not, right? Because if, if let's say you're using Selenium WebDriver right now and it's doing fine for you, you have maybe a screenplay pattern on top of it, or you've got, you know, some sort of extra layer t- to handle your waiting and synchronization, um, and you've already got reporting built in, there's no need to reinvent a wheel if it's working, but if you're, if, if a good day for you is um, 85 percent passing where 15 percent of your tests out of a suite of a thousand are just failing intermittently that's an enormous problem and so we need to get yeah. to the root of that problem and one of the roots of that problem may be that you didn't have a good pattern on top to handle waiting. and so maybe you should consider a different framework like playwright in that case
0: that's great yeah it's you know, I, I totally understand and empathize with this um, attitude, especially because so many people flood into uh, development every day um, because, you know, it's it's a great it's a great career. It pays well. Uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, the <laughs> current situation in the economy notwithstanding, there's still a lot of development jobs that are out there. But um, I think it's very natural, especially as people are just getting into things. But I think even people that are far into their career and very invested in a particular tech stack there's so much about am i on the right one and you know I, we've dealt with this with yeah. the web uh the sort of the front end frameworks for a long time angular vue react and you know it's the same thing right they're viable they're all viable they have trade offs mm-hmm. and, and not just trade offs on a functional level or even a technical level but in a social level i mean just what your team is familiar with i mean i i can't even go into how many teams i know that came said oh we used to do java back development and we had to start doing front end so angular just really worked for us it just felt very mm-hmm. familiar and i'm like that's great I'm, I'm happy that works out or somebody says you know i came from whatever and this felt very familiar to me and i i like that variety and i'm sure you would say the same thing i love that you have different teams doing trying out and prioritizing different features I think it's better for all of us in the end, mm-hmm. better for all the libraries. Cause you, 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 yes. know, you get to see which one works best for you. And eventually if it works best for everybody, well, then they're probably all going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, you know, I, I, it's so funny when I think about testing, one of the things that uh, is in my testing uh, skeleton in my closet is I once wrote a test that I was, so proud of. I probably am still the most proud of this test than anything I've ever done in my life, but I wasn't proud of what it accomplished. I was proud of how it was built. It was a C-sharp test, it was a unit test, and it did all some really cool reflection and awesome stuff, and it was supposed to be this ability to test whether you could write a thing out to a file and read it back in, and it was exactly the same. And it would work for any object. It could find all its properties and do it perfectly but of course certain properties just weren't serializable so you had to remember to uh, allow list or deny list those certain properties in certain Mm -hmm. scenarios but it was magic after that well two things happened on the tail end of this one it became the most hated test in our code repository because every time someone added a new property to something that wasn't serializable it always broke and it didn't Mm. break because it caught a bug it broke because somebody didn't add something to the deny list and then it never caught a bug (laughs) because this Mm. was one of the scenarios that everybody tested when they added something new was whether Mm. or not it's serialized or deserialized and it was at that point I learned that you can be so proud of your tests they can be the most technically marvelous thing you've ever built but if it never breaks or only breaks when nothing's wrong. It's a terrible <laughs> test. So mm. it's kind of curious your thought on that slash just other sorts of, uh, thoughts, best advice, uh, mm-hmm. rules of the road that you have for people oh, as they set out to write some of their tests. Sure. Sure. So there's, there's one, all of them.
1: <laughs> no worries. No worries. There's one thing that I want to nitpick on what you just said, though. Um, they, I got a sense that you felt like the test was not valuable because it never failed. I mean there's the aspect of, okay, well, if it may have failed when it wasn't supposed to, yes, that sucks, right? But if a test never fails, I mean it's always passing. if it is actually exercising the behavior appropriately and properly reporting that it's passing, that is still valuable. That is not necessarily an invaluable test because sure. tests exist. For both the positive feedback, yes, it's working as well as the negative feedback. You know, I've something I've, I've got a pulse on occasionally is seems like, well, our tests are always passing. Why are we even running these anymore? It's like, well, OK, yeah, that's fair. Be careful. <laughs> Don't just go ripping those out. You know, it's yeah. If you're if you're jaded by good test results and they're legitimate, um, um, count your blessings one by one,
0: <laughs> you know, but um yeah that's interesting i you know yeah so that's interesting because i think more my impression from it was just uh, the trade-off wasn't worth it the pain Mm. we experienced having to maintain it wasn't worth the fact that it never caught a real bug um Mm. but you're you're right yeah we should be more precise Mm -hmm. with that you know i think it's the same thing i've known people that that went for 100 percent code coverage so every Mm -hmm. getter and setter even though their code base never had a getter and setter that wasn't that was actually implemented. It was just a straight through, so you're just testing the the, the underlying code base. Um, if you have those tests, if you went through the trouble already to add them, I think I would agree with you. There's no reason to mm-hmm. remove them. They're not hurting anything yeah. by existing necessarily, uh, but but you may consider not adding them, potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, potentially, if, yep. if If the if the trade-off of, of doing that maybe isn't, exactly. isn't worth it. Isn't and that's, that's, that's catch the, an error.
1: Exactly, that's the trade-off. The The amount of investment you put in versus the amount of return you got. And it sounded like you put in, you and your team put in a lot of investment, but not a whole lot of return came from it. And those are the kinds of cases where it's like, yeah, you might wanna take a a small testing risk and just kind of avoid that. It's is very common. I, I don't believe 100% coverage is ideal, right? You know, testing is a risk mitigating activity. We only have so much time and resources, never as much as we should, it seems. And so we have to be kind of picky in what we invest in and what we maintain. And so in those cases, yeah, I mean, there have been times where I'm like, yep, I am not going to cover this thing because it is going to be way too complicated to set up and keep it running. So even if it is valuable behavior, maybe we avoid that. You know, We're, we're not all t- testing a rocket ship. You know, <laughs> if, if, if something goes wrong, it's not gonna cause bajillions of dollars of failure. In those cases, we might have a different conversation. We're, we're developing web apps. We're developing microservices. You know, it's we need to make sure they're good, but we don't need to, you know, break our team and our company just to make sure that a
0: getter is there. But going back to that bank account software, <laughs> maybe oh. just maybe. <laughs> uh, so if you're working on that, um, yeah. Oh, be careful. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you, you gave a talk too on like the which was a really creative talk. Maybe we'll start out there. You gave a talk on the eight software testing convictions, but it was all built built around a central conceit, sort of a central analogy. Could you mm-hmm. ex- introduce people to kind of how you chose to go through this topic?
1: Sure, sure. So you're bringing up one of my favorite talks for everybody out there. If you just Google making great waves, eight software testing convictions, you will find recordings of this. Um In this talk, what I did is I talked about Japanese woodblock prints. Um, We're probably all familiar with the Great Wave of Kanagawa. If you're not, Google it. It's that giant blue wave over Mount Fuji. It's one of the most recognizable pieces of art in the world. If you type in ocean on your phone, the emoji for it pops up. Um, I love uh, Japanese woodblock prints. They're called ukiyo-e, the pictures of the floating world. If we were at at my home, all my, all along my wall in my office, I've got these prints all over the place. And what, what I have found with these prints is first of all, they're excellent quality, right? They, they, even to this day, hundreds of years after the fact that these were printed, people still love them. They're bright, they're vibrant, they're fun, right? They're very accessible. You've got very interesting characters, very beautiful landscapes. And what, what the, the reason why we have this, this um, affection for these prints worldwide is because of their quality, right? These were produced well. They were designed with intention. Um, they were small and portable, so that anybody could take them home, put them up on their wall. I mean, back in the day, these things were cheap. They were like five to ten U.S. dollars equivalent to today's money, like the cost of a bowl of noodles is what these people buy and they decorate their homes. It's kind of like you go to Target, you see a poster, I like it, boom, put it on the wall. That's what these were back in the day. Now, I mean, they're selling for hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars, some of them, but when I look at the artists who made these, I see that they cared about the quality of their work. And so that inspires me to instill high quality in my software work, whether you're making woodblock prints or you're making web applications, quality is quality. And so then what I do in my talk is I walk through different aspects of the prints and the printmaking process and making parallels to software development.
0: Yeah, it's, it's one of those talks that when, you know, if, if anybody hasn't had an opportunity to do this, try to um, apply to do like speak at a conference or, or a meetup, you know, if you're afraid to do it. But everybody should. It's, it's a great experience. Local meetups will often allow you. There's a lot of local meetups and you can do it in a much lower risk environment than trying to go to a thing. But sitting down to write a description of a talk you can have a perfectly formed idea in your head of what you think would be a really compelling talk, but having to distill that down to 150 characters or whatever they give you, 200, 300, 500 characters to describe it. Mm -hmm. So when you see a talk concept like that, it's one of those ones that you're just like, yeah, I wish I thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) Such a a good idea. Uh, It's one of those ones that you feel really proud of after you've put it together, I feel like. Yes,
1: yes. I mean, we even printed a bunch of postcard-sized prints where on the front, we had one of one of eight different traditional woodblock prints, including the Great Wave. And on the back, we had the um, eight convictions and a QR code to a recording of the talk. And I give those out at conferences.
0: Oh, it's brand Even new. conferences
1: where I don't give the talk, I still give them out. And people love it because art is compelling. And Absolutely. testing, like woodblock printing, is art. It's art as well as engineering.
0: One of the things that I, I thought the first the first one, at least I believe it's the first one, is, is focusing on, or one of them anyways, focusing on the value that the cus- consumers seek, that people seek. Mm-hmm. And this one, I think, is maybe most people hearing it will think it's obvious, mm-hmm. but it's not. I mean, for people that, for developers, we're so trained to find edge cases and to find ways to break things. That's just like how we look at the world. But I don't know like i don't know if this is what you intended with it but i know like i just recently was sitting down with a team and we're looking at a ui or a feature mm-hmm. and we're like oh but what if this and what if this what if this and it's so funny sometimes you get to the end of that and you're like but no one will be here <laughs> like that's not a real person the person that would it, that would have to exist for that scenario mm-hmm. to occur isn't a realistic person or is at most one person and for the time mm-hmm. it would take us to solve it we could fly an engineer out there apologize to them personally and fix it for them <laughs> you know, yes. it's like, so i uh, i don't know if you could talk a little bit more about that idea and and mm-hmm. how people can get on this mindset of where that value mm-hmm. is that that needs that needs the most testing
1: sure absolutely um I always like to think about it in terms of behavior, the behaviors in the application. The behaviors are what brings value. And like like you said, sometimes as developers or whoever, engineers, or whatever you want to call yourself, we we get so caught up in the things that we want to build, whether or not they deliver value. Right. And that that happens in testing as well. Like, oh well, I can test this whole page and everything on it. It's like there are like two people out of a million in the world who ever use that page. It's an end page. Why are you spending weeks developing all these tests for that? <laughs> we have much instead of spending it on these other things that are more valuable. And so how do you change that mindset? Um, be aware of it first of all uh, talk to your product owners they're supposed to be the ones who are knowing what is actually valuable because as developers we don't always get that exposure right like a, a previous company I worked on a, a, a banking app for commercial loan pricing and it's like I've never, done this before i don't know i don't know what's important y- y'all need to tell me what's important so i can bake that into what we're developing and testing um and to be intentional about it you know it's it's one thing to be ignorant it's another thing to be willfully ignorant right don't if you got blind and rip them off like ask questions get better context if you're just gonna that's where you're gonna get into trouble and you waste a lot of time and money and effort <laughs>
0: I don't even I don't know if you've ever done this exercise, too, but I I love the concept of personas, which is done a mm. lot in design and requirements development. And, you know, if your team has formal personas, use those certainly. But mm-hmm. I found myself having getting a lot of value out of sitting down again with a team. And when you're discussing a certain mm-hmm. issue or whether you should fix a bug or, or, or how mm-hmm. to fix a bug to just ask someone that just says, OK, introduce me to the person that's doing mm-hmm. this like Mm -hmm. and it's not a test or a challenge it's not it's not meant to belittle the person who's raising the concern it's just saying like Mm -hmm. hey can you let's just take a second and let's figure out who this person is what's going on in their life how did they end up in this situation (laughs) what are they worried about right now and 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 that'll help us not only determine whether it's important or not but also Mm -hmm. how to fix it because Mm -hmm. as developers again you know we maybe try to sand down every edge, but maybe it's just the case mm-hmm. that, listen, we might still have some, treacher- some treacherous paths, but they're just trying to do whatever it is. And if we can get them back onto that path, yeah. then that'll be good enough for that person. I, I don't know. Mm, is, is this part good. of the exercise that you've done before or something that you, you'd recommend?
1: I would absolutely recommend this. I mean, talking to the, the real persona is planning and production. <laughs> Think about it. It's like you can you can have this fake person, but do we really trust that? You would hope so. I mean, I don't I don't I'm not advocating just doubt everything your product owners do. Right. They, they put time and attention into building these personas. But I mean, let's let's be honest. There's a big difference between a fake persona and a real person. Right. So it's if you have the opportunity to talk to those real people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: do it, because that's going to be the most valuable feedback that you can receive.
0: It is humbling i mean we Mm -hmm. i think there's something that i was struck by recently which is that um you know again when it comes to quality i think all of us many of us some of us may be perfectionists but just in general i think we put a lot of pride into the code and the the experiences Mm -hmm. that we put out there and I, i think in general people hold on to things too long Um, and and, and just really want to polish it until it's perfect. And what I was struck by was two things. One, that it's amazing how much of an effect, some testing, another round of of bug fixes, a little bit of polish here and there, how much of a difference that makes in a product, even just a little Mm. investment in those things. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I was struck by how janky something can be and still deliver value to somebody. Mm-hmm. And some of the most broken apps that have typos riddled throughout the UI, they still work. And people are willing to pay for value that they mm-hmm. can get. And yep. I think this is always super fascinating to me as this sort of trade off of like mm-hmm. invest in quality, mm-hmm. but ship. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and people will strike those cow paths and then meet those people and solve the problems they actually have. Not the problems you thought maybe a hypothetical user would have. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's really on point. I I would agree with that sentiment. Um, I mean, if you can't do the janky thing forever, but it's a great way to (laughs) get something out there and deliver value. And you can learn from that because it's like, okay, well, before we invest in putting the polish on, are people actually using this and are they using it the way they expect? It says, yes, yes, okay, now we can fix it and get more people. But if no, you're like, okay, well, I didn't waste a whole lot of time. I can pivot to something else.
0: Absolutely. I, I you know, I, I, do think, too, that um, I've used this to help junior developers combat um, imposter syndrome because I, I tell them on some level, listen, your code will not be as elegant as somebody who has developed for 20 years. But you know what? If what you produce delivers value on the tail end, it could make more money than any app someone developing for 15 years has ever produced. And I think for so many developers, that's they never get off that dimension where code is everything. Like mm. all worth and value is on the effectiveness of the code versus the value mm. it delivers. And yes. I think... Again, there's room to have that to have that be the thing you're focused on. But if, if what you're trying to do is build a business or build a thing that gets customers, um, again, you know, you can you can be a junior developer and launch a massively successful startup and mm-hmm. you will be amazed at what your app will be able to do, even though you mm-hmm. know underneath the hood it is duct tape and popsicle sticks in the <laughs> grand scheme of what you will eventually be able to develop in your career.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, and, and the tests will be there to help you along the way. <laughs> yes,
1: yes, indeed.
0: All right. One thing that I wanted to touch on briefly, because I I just curious what the, again something that I'm not super familiar with, at least not every day, is testing on mobile. And as it pertains to automated testing, you know mm-hmm. where where are we with this support? Because I mean, obviously, the ability to do Cypress tests or Playwright tests with web experiences is mm-hmm. game changing. And mm-hmm. you know, maybe many people felt like this was out of reach uh, mm-hmm. for most mobile experiences or desktop experiences. So. What what can we do these days with this kind well, of this
1: Yeah, mobile Mobile is certainly more complicated than web. And I hate to say this, in my opinion, it is still somewhat painful to do. And I only have limited experience, but I have done research on it. I've played around a bit and I've talked to people. Um, it, it seems as though the the state of mobile testing and automation experience is still years behind where we are in the web, right? Um, and and the reason is primarily because you need all this extra stuff in order to do mobile. Like with, with web, you just have a browser on your machine and you go to town, right? With mobile, you need to decide, are you doing real devices or emulators or simulators? Then you've got to get those things in place. And a lot of times to get the those things in place, then you also need the entire developer studios for those like Android Studio or Xcode. Um, I remember recently I, I gave a shot at doing uh, Android testing on, um, on my Mac and I had to download like over 13 gigabytes of stuff just to get the thing set up, you know? And then on top of that, you need special inspecting software versus, you know, right click Chrome dev tools. You don't have that. you got to have like Android inspector, then you need to like Android doctor to make sure you had all these dependencies in place. And it was just, it was a lot. It was slow to set up. And there were many, many mistakes along the way. Um, I think there is probably an opportunity to try to at least improve the experience on getting the setup in place. Uh, because it, like I would consider, I'm a fairly experienced person with test automation, and I was able to get it done and working. I had tests going. But I mean, it took me like a whole day just to set everything up and troubleshoot just to get my demo app running on my emulator on my local machine, not even writing the test. <laughs> um, as far as the the tools and frameworks are, or like the tools and frameworks for test automation, uh, Appium is, is classic, right? It's basically Selenium for m- native mobile apps. So I, I use that. There's also like uh, Espresso, which is supposed to be like a little layer up, makes it a little bit nicer. Um, it'll be interesting to see where these things go or if there's going to be like a Cypress or Playwright for mobile. Um, Cypress, I'm pretty sure won't because of the way their technology is, but I mean, something like that user experience is what I mean, like that that kind of approach. Um, I don't know if anybody's working on that because it is so tough and because, I mean, if you look at the people who do testing and automation, um, even though there's arguably more mobile apps out than web apps these days, the the amount of web apps that have tested automation behind them versus mobile is still much, much lower. So you're you're chasing a, if you're trying to make a tool or framework, you're chasing a smaller slice of the pie. So there's that this that disincentive that I see right now. But anything can change. So for those out there who who want an opportunity, make mobile test automation better. <laughs>
0: Even just trying to conceptualize what what selectors are in that environment, I mean, something that is so uh, you don't mm-hmm. appreciate until you're in an environment where you're not necessarily driven by HTML. So yes. suddenly, it's a little bit harder to even decide yes. tell it what to click on on a screen. Ex- so exactly, exactly. That's
1: that's why you need like you need an extra tool just to be able to peer in and tell you that. And then you're kind of taking on faith what they give you. (laughs) At least that was was my experience. I was like, uh, I wish I had better visibility here. That's just me.
0: Well, so many of us are developing mobile experiences, even though they're in browsers. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you have an opinion on kind of what best practices now as far as, yeah, we can run all these automations, but... Are Mm -hmm. we, should we be running them on device, different types of devices, Mm -hmm. you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing through these tools that we're using is, is that even a capability?
1: Sure. Sure. I mean, cross device testing is way harder than cross browser testing because it's like Mm -hmm. browser. You can have them all install your machine, right? Mm -hmm. Devices you need like however many gigabytes per device, there's a whole ton more devices out there. Or if you want to get real devices, it's very, very expensive. I think for most cases, a an emulator or simulator is fine. Um, there there might be these weird edge cases that that pop up. Oh, on a Nexus, Pixel, iPhone seventy three. I don't even know these things anymore. I'm on an iPhone seven. I'm way back in history. Um, but whatever device you have is like it's kind of like I said before. If there's an issue, fly out the dude and apologize and fix it. Then <laughs> you know that's. Uh, but if you'll get probably like you know ninety eight percent of the, the stuff you need to cover. On a device, on a like an emulator or a simulator, probably. Um, now, as far as the kinds of things I would recommend testing, um, you definitely want to test your workflows through your applications to make sure that you know you can log in, you can click this button, you can navigate here, you can take this screenshot, you know, all the that basic stuff. Um, but when it comes to the cross-device aspect of that, you probably want to do that kind of those workflow things on you know a phone, a tablet, portrait, landscape four basic ones, then get at least one Android and one iOS, so times two. But then if you wanna do bigger, like true cross device testing to get a good mix, that's where you would wanna do some sort of visual testing techniques, like with what Apple tools does, because it's one aspect of it is just the flow through it, but the other aspect is the responsive design, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. when it's like this, it's a lot different than when it's like this. <laughs> you know, if you have a very long slender phone versus a very wide tablet, um, and b- visuals and are an indelible part of user experience. So you want to make sure that when you choomp, choomp, and you do all that, that everything is still looks what, right and works right. You don't have these weird overlapping layers. And so that's where you would have something like Apple tools come in and be able to take those snapshots for you because you're not going to get that with a traditional scripting of a selector or something. It's not going to check size. It's not going to check placement. It's not going to check color. Visual testing techniques can do that
0: right and we hadn't talked about it too explicitly but like if 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 anybody here is listening and you haven't yet had to deal with um doing kind of these snapshot testings and you look at the two snapshots and you're like they are exactly the same but it's like one pixel Discoloration in the corner was off, or <laughs> whatever mm-hmm. the reason is. Um, you know, it's just subtly off, and I know like that has led to some sort of bad team practices of just, oh, you, you know, oh, I made a change, I run the test, oh, all well, my snapshot tests failed. Okay, just generate new snapshots and be done with it. It's like no, you're mm-hmm. supposed to look at them first, <laughs> at least. Um, and so having a tool like what Appli Tools can do to kind of make that mm-hmm. less painful. Huh. exactly <laughs> exactly again give you less of a reason to do those uh those sort of toxic behaviors of just being like exactly. oh of course the, of course the snapshots broke regenerate the snapshots it's like yeah yeah well, I mean that that harkens
1: back to what we've been talking about with like developer experience right you you want tools that can actually help you and deliver value you know some some tools might have that inkling of idea but they poor execution well now you need to polish it and get it that's that's kind of where Apple Tools went.
0: <laughs> well, um, I know that uh, near the ends of these podcasts, we love to talk about how people can get involved. And there are sort of two cool ways that I know people can get involved uh, with things that you do with Apple Tools. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, I don't know which one you want to dive into first here, but maybe the Apple Tools Ambassadors Program, because I know that one is very recent. Can you kind of explain sure. what this is and what sure. people might be seeing pop up soon?
1: Sure, sure. Awesome. So yes, the Apple tools ambassadors program is a, a special program where we invite people who are Apple tools, super fans to, you know, become our ambassadors. Uh, they will speak on our behalf at events. They'll write blog articles. They'll give us critical feedback. They'll get access to things coming up in the roadmap, you know, the kind of almost like our, our inner circle. Um, these are people who have either used Apple tools themselves, hands-on, or they're people who may have had, who have, been in leadership positions, bringing Apple tools into an organization or a team because of the value that visual testing techniques uh, can bring. And so we just invited our first set of ambassadors and you've probably been seeing some notifications come out. Uh, I am gearing up to invite a second wave. We already have a whole bunch of candidates. I'm really, really excited about that. Uh, to, to be an ambassador, you can, um, uh, there, there's an ambassador's page on the um, Apple tools website. If you think that you've got what it takes Feel free, let us know. You can submit or you can apply there. Um, (laughs) When you are an ambassador, we will give you a very nice hoodie. Apple's little ambassadors. Um, It's going to be really, really cool.
0: And uh, sometimes with these programs, they're set up for people that are maybe content creators, they write blogs or do Mm -hmm. videos or host events and things of Mm -hmm. that nature. Um, If somebody's listening to this and they're like, I use Apple tools all the time, I love Apple tools, I have strong opinions on where the platform should go, but I, Mm -hmm. I don't have an active blog and I don't do these things. Is, is this still a program for those types of people or is is they're different, okay.
1: Yep. So, I mean, we, we certainly welcome people who are already influencers and content creators, but also it's a great, it's a great opportunity to step up into that. Right. Um, personally, I'm more interested that people care about quality testing and Apple tools than that they've got like a bajillion followers on Twitter, right. Uh, quality over quantity, (laughs)
0: That's great. And a great way for people to get involved uh, and, and to give back. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's sometimes these tools, uh, you know, I know, I've talked to people that like eventually they became ambassadors to one thing or the other. They're like, I didn't really expect this was going to become a core part of my identity. But when you have a tool that you like using and you find the right community, you know, some people just really yep. get hooked on it. Yeah, Exactly. I know the last piece that we wanted to touch on was the, the test automation uh, U you piece. Uh, you're, you're listed as a director of that. And kind of, can you give people a sense of what that is and why they should be looking out for that?
1: Certainly. So, Test Automation University is Apple Tools' major community oriented program. Um, it is an online platform where we host courses from some of the world's best instructors on all topics testing, automation, and quality. Right now we have around 70 courses that we've published over the past four years. We've had, Oh gosh, I, I forget the exact numbers, but I think like over 150,000 students have registered for courses. Um, We've had like a million, some credit hour of credits earned as part of this. It's, it's really awesome. And the best part is all these courses are free, right? So if you want to go learn about how to use PyTest with Python for test automation, go over to Test Automation University, I did that course. Or if you want to learn how to set a, a foundation for successful test automation, that was our first course. Angie Jones did that. Feel free for that. I mean, we cross all languages, JavaScript, Java, Python, C Sharp, Ruby. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we even have some basic programming courses. So if let's say you're a manual tester and you want, you're, you're on a team now where they're moving to something like Cypress. Okay, well, maybe... You need to learn how to do JavaScript programming first. We have a course on that, and then we have a whole whole Cypress track. So, boom, there you go. Um, I love it. It was one of the main reasons I wanted to join Apple Tools, and I am. I never expected that I would become the director of it, which means that I'm the one who is coming up with the um, the plans for upcoming courses, working with instructors as part of developing that, and then actually I go in and pop them into the app and publish them once they're ready. So it's it's an excellent program. It's a beloved program. Um, I know I've talked to so many people around the world who'll be like, who tell me things like, Andy, oh my gosh, we use TAU for our onboarding for our teams. Wow. <laughs> so That's definitely really check it cool. out. Um, it's, it's awesome. Great quality courses, instructors, everything's free. Thank Apple tools. They're the ones who, who sponsor and run this whole thing.
0: So, yeah. And I think it's worth noting that we've talked a lot about JavaScript and web development and things of that nature, Python on this, but there mm-hmm. are a lot. It's not just web and it's not just JavaScript. It's mm-hmm. like I said, it's Python, it's Java, it's it's mobile, it's API. It's it's a yes. bunch of things. So no matter what what kind of developer you are, that's what's mm-hmm. cool is there. there's content there for you. And free is a great price. So, <laughs> um, all right. Well, that brings us to the end. Um, That goes by very quickly, as always. Um, That's going to be it for us today. Thank you for listening to this Modern Web Podcast. Thank you to our guest, Andrew. As always, conversation does not stop here. You can find Andrew on Twitter at AutomationPanda. That's A-U-T-O-M-A-T-I-O-N-P-A-N-D-A. You can find me online at RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at ModernDOTWeb.com or on Twitter at Modern.Web. Thanks everyone. See you next time. Come on. Come on, everybody. This podcast is sponsored by This.Labs, a framework-agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this dot dot C-O slash labs. That's t h i s d o t dot c o slash labs. Query shouting! Yeah! yeah! queries do. So come let's on Let's go Cause we got a show For you